No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. Returning as a bookend event for the Brooklyn Book Festival, our Punch Up show also celebrated the release of the No, You Tell It 10-year anthology from Palm Circle Press. Lose yourself in school-age nostalgia in our first story, Confection Resolution, written by Matt Storrs and performed by Maria Rubio, which finds our hero fighting the same childhood foe three times. Switching it up, The Great Unknowns, written by Maria Rubio and performed by Matt Storrs, follows an exhausted nurse in the middle of the global pandemic who carves out time for herself with a surfing lesson. And a huge thank you to alum and guest host Ellie Dvorkin Dunn. Give a listen as she punches up the evening with her warmth and humor. For those of you who have never been to Know You Tell It, don't know what it is, let me explain what we're doing here tonight, okay? So Know You Tell It was conceived by my dear friend, Kelly Jean Fitzsimmons. Everybody say, yay, Kelly Jean! So this is how it works, okay? Kelly Jean, or a member of her team, comes up with a theme. In tonight's case, that theme is punch-up. And she invites four storytellers to write a true story from their life inspired by that theme. And then we get together for two workshop sessions where the stories are read aloud and a group gives feedback that helps the writers revise their stories. But the catch is nobody ever reads their own story out loud. Hence the name, No, You Tell It. Everybody say, oh, now I get it. Thank you, my power feels exerted. Um, So then, about a week before the actual show, we decide who's going to be paired with who, and those people swap stories, and they have a rehearsal with a coach. But these rehearsals are conducted in private. So what's so fantastic about what you're about to see tonight is that you're going to be watching a performer perform someone else's story, step into their shoes for the first time, and you know, really want to do that story justice, and you'll be watching the writer of that story see their words performed by someone else for the first time. So I've been in the audience of this many times. I've also participated in it up here. But um, my favorite role is as an audience member, honestly, because I love to watch the face of the person who's experiencing their story being told and going back and forth. It's, It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. All right, I'm going to keep talking. We have a few more housekeeping things. Tonight is very important for a multitude of reasons. As I said, this has been kept going for 10 years. Through the pandemic, I am going to ask for a round of applause because that's a huge achievement. Um, We're celebrating the publishing of a 10-year anthology of a curated selection of story swaps that is available both in paperback and as an ebook. And the ebook is really cool because you can click on links that will take you to the podcast episodes that are recording recordings of the performances that took place live. So you'll be hearing more about the book and the ebook later. You'll have a chance to win a copy, and you're really going to want that because a story that I wrote is in there. So. Um, <laughs> 
you'll extra want that. Tonight is also part of the Brooklyn Book Festival. This is our fourth event with them, so thank you to the Book and Events Committee for including us. And another reason that it's important is we're continuing to build community by having No You Tell It alums participate in unique ways. Here I am hosting, I've also directed a pairing of the stories, and we have Pachenda Bao here, who um, served as a guest story coach. She and I were part of a No You Tell It that was also a Brooklyn book, book Festival event back in 2019, which I call the before times, like I forget everything before a certain time. but. Um, that was an evening of comedians and poets swapping stories. So thank you, Chenda, for helping with all of the stories tonight. Okay, that was so much information. Now I'm gonna ask for a little bit of very important audience participation. Please pull out your cell phones. You've all put them away, you've been very responsible. I'd like you to pull them out if you can. And the first thing I want you to do, I'm sure you've already done it because you're all responsible adults, but the first thing I'd like you to do is to silence them. Silence your cell phones. Um, at this point, my mother, who has a funny accent, would go, I don't know how to do that. So if you don't know how to do it, turn to someone. You all know how to silence your cell phones. The second thing you can do is I'm giving you permission to open Instagram. Go to Instagram. My mother would say, I don't know that. I don't have Instagram. Go to Facebook if you're like 90 or Twitter, you know, Friendster if you still have. It's not, we don't have that. But go look at No You Tell It. Look up No You Tell It on Instagram. And if you haven't already followed us, please follow us on Instagram. And then we give you permission tonight. You can take pictures and tag us so that all your friends and people see how much fun and how wonderful this is. And maybe they'll come to the next one and they'll tell your friends. Okay, they're friends. The next thing after you've done that is please open your web browser. What's a web browser? Don't worry about it, Mom. You don't have to just stay on YouTube. Just watch it on the YouTube. Go to knowyoutellit.com. This is very important because right there on the homepage is the online program. We haven't handed you a paper program. We are saving paper and trees. We're from the future. It's the year 5782 in Jewish years. So um, there's the online program, and you can read all about the people who have participated tonight. And then I swear I'm going to call up the storytellers in two seconds. <laughs> While, uh, but right before I call them up, if you wanted to do one more thing, you could, I know you're sick of me talking already, but you could open up your podcast app and find this podcast called Circling the Drain. That's a podcast that I co-produce and co-host with another Know You Tell It alum, Julia Granaki, who's sitting here in the front row. Um, Circling the Drain is a perimenopausal podcast about the period before you stop getting your period. Don't let that freak you out. If, if none of that seems like it has anything to do with you, I still want you to open it up and subscribe and follow us, and then think about like a woman in your life or someone who might appreciate humor and information about women's health uh, as they transition into the menopausal years. There's a little girl over here who's got a phone and she's following our podcast right now. <laughs> and she's really, it's gonna be good information for you. So maybe not yet, I don't, you wanna curate that mom or dad or both of you, yeah. Um, Okay, so continue doing all of that on your phones. I am going to step away, and now I'd like to invite up Matt and Maria for the next portion of our program. <laughs> so
So here at Know You Tell It, we like to do a little, while Maria gets ready to read Matt's story, we like to do a little Q&A with the writer. And I also like to hear the writer's voice so that when the reader is performing their story, I can maybe imagine what they might sound like or what they might be thinking or something like that. Now, I was supposed to come up with questions, but um, I was so busy memorizing all that crap, I said before that I've, I've turned to books that I bought for a road trip for my family. My son is young. He didn't want me to tell you all, but he's eight. So I have the kids' book of questions and would you rather. So I'm okay. going to start with a question from the kids' book of questions, but I found one that can work for adults. Okay. So Matt, if you could have a round-trip ride in a time machine and travel any distance into the past or future, where would you want to go? I would want to go back to the beginning of 2020. Oh. Uh, and I would like to make some investments. Uh, <laughs> And then also warn some people of some things. So there's a couple contracts that I signed at the beginning of 2020 <laughs> that I wish I could get the money back from. Uh, they were very, uh, very good negotiators, let's put it that way. And uh, yeah, I would like to have not spent that money. I think that's a really good answer. Thank you. Um, now I'm going to ask you a would you rather, just because it's so short and fun. Yeah, yeah. Would you rather, everyone think about this, Kiss a fish that's been living in a radioactive pond or roll down a hill while hugging a porcupine? Radioactive pond. Uh, absolutely. Show uh, of hands for radioactive pond? Show of hands for porcupine? See, the people that chose porcupine chose wrong. Uh, because a porcupine's spines uh, will splinter and they become very hard to dislodge. Uh, so you are in for pain for a long time. Whereas a radioactive kiss... You know, just take some, uh, what is it? Uh, yeah, for, don't have to French kiss it. Thank and you, Michelle. You, you know, you <laughs> take some charcoal afterwards. You've right. absorbed some of that radiation. Uh, the taste, also get that out. You'll be just, fine. Just, Matt, this is never going to happen. You're never going to be given this choice in real life. I, I like to prepare. I'm uh, glad you're prepared. <laughs> Go back to 2020. Think yeah. about porcupines and radioactive fish. All right. Now, finally... We have our first set of stories directed by Kelly Jean Fitzsimmons. This is Confection Resolution by Matt Stores, performed by Maria Rubio. Confection Resolution. When I was a kid, I fought the same person multiple times. The first fight I remember us being in was in elementary school, saying that I remember is somewhat inaccurate. I, I remember standing across from a skinny kid named Jordan. I remember him saying something about me being overweight. I remember a bunch of kids surrounding us. It was that clear, stereotypical fight scene from elementary school. But I don't remember what happens. I don't recall any punches or kicks. I don't recall either one of us hitting the ground. I feel like if I'd been victorious, I would have some memory. After the fight, nobody ever mentioned anything to me. I don't recall kids picking on me about losing the fight. They picked on me for my weight, but not for my lack of fighting skills. I kept going to school with Jordan, and we avoided each other. He grew taller and more athletic. 
he seemed comfortable in his body becoming a star baseball player by high school. I'd go into sports too, but I'd be less comfortable in my body. Unaware of the width of my shoulders, I'd consistently run into door frames. When I got into the water, I sank. I didn't own jeans because I couldn't find any that would fit over my thighs. I was stocky. The next time we fought, we were in high school. It was our junior year in a study hall. Our attempts to avoid one another were foiled by the school's athletic director. Athletes were required to have a study hall once a week. In our study hall one day, we were asked to fill out Scantron sheets <laughs> about our drug habits and those we saw around the school. Our school district was having problems with increased drug usage. Why they expected high school juniors to be honest? <laughs> I'm not sure. My friends and I thought it would be hilarious to answer the most extreme answer to each question. We'd never so much as drank alcohol, let alone done anything else listed, yet we were going to skew the data. How often do you think about using drugs? The answers were never, sometimes, often, or all the time. We selected all the time. <laughs> do you often use multiple drugs at once? All the time. How often do you purchase your drugs in or around school? All the time. We were a little too boisterous about our answers and Jordan overheard. He and his friends voiced concerns that there would be a huge crackdown on our school because of our answers. We ignored him and continued filling out the Scantron. How often do you use alcohol? All the time. Marijuana? All the time. Prescription pills? All the time. I don't think we would have answered this way if we weren't assured our answers would be anonymous. Everything would be collected and fed through a reader. The data would be used to help identify problems in the district as a whole, but not at our school. When they asked us to turn in our scantrons, Jordan insisted we give them to him. If you guys fill it out like that, he trailed off. I kind of want to keep it, I said. He grabbed the scantrons off our table before I could put them away. He tried to invalidate them as best he could, doing the cardinal sin of a scantron. He filled in additional bubbles. <laughs> he wrote in the do not write in this area <laughs> section, and not satisfied with the misuse of a number two pencil, he ran a black marker across each sheet. We didn't have to turn them in. We could have just ripped them up, I said. Our school isn't some drug hub, he insisted. The school was a drug hub, though. The school hired new security each semester I'd attended the school to combat the growing drug problem. Being unable to bust every user or dealer, threats of detention, suspension, and expulsion always loomed. That was, unless you were an athlete. Then your indiscretions would be referred to your coach. 
The coaches could dictate the punishment, and based on your skills, all would be forgotten. I learned later that Jordan smoked weed and sold it to some other athletes. He was worried he might be found out. Anytime there was the smallest altercation, security would be there to defuse the situation. The place security supervised most closely was the lunchroom. In addition to multiple guards walking between the tables, they installed a camera above one of the overhead lights. The camera was conspicuously placed in a light bulb package that just happened to remain above the overhead light despite students' attempts to dislodge it with whatever they could throw at it. I was one of those kids that walked around campus saying, hello, to different people. I ran for student government without actually running. My primary location was in the lunchroom. Our lunch tables were long and in four sections where eight people could sit on each side. I sat at the jock table, but at the second section. The first section closest to the doors of the lunchroom was set for the most popular and wealthy jocks. My section was a set of in-betweeners. We told stoner jokes, talked about comics and the movies we loved. That's not to say we didn't do stereotypically dumb things. For instance, one day we'd gotten our hands on Harry Potter jelly beans. These were a set of jelly beans that had good flavors of watermelon, peach, cherry, and blueberry. They also included disgusting ones. Boogers, dirt, vomit, rotten eggs. We devised a game. Someone took out their daily medication organizer and secretly filled each day with three good flavors and three bad flavors, kind of like jelly bean Russian roulette. We played, each of us taking one jelly bean at a time. Three of us were happy and three of us regretted our choices. <laughs> we kept track of what each jelly bean was. It was disgusting, but so much fun. The first segment of the table was also playing a game. It was the one where you flip a water bottle into the air, trying to get it to land right side up. Less creative, but they seemed to be having fun. They would cheer anytime someone was successful. Jordan decided to play. He flipped the water bottle into the air a few feet. It came down right side up. They cheered, but he could do better. This time, he tossed it high into the air, but with too much force. It hit the ceiling, ricocheting off the unmovable hidden camera, landing right between me and my friend Simon. The bottle opened and drenched us. Simon looked at me and asked, Matt, are we going to do this? <laughs> I hesitated. Upset and angry at my delayed response, he stood and began walking to the first section of the table. I followed him. Yet again, Jordan had made my life more difficult. If the water had just landed on me, I could have passed it off, but I couldn't hide with Simon so upset. This time, I was actually going to need to do something. It was going to be a rematch people didn't remember they wanted. <laughs> what happens when the stocky and nerdy jock meets the tall and popular jock? We were gonna find out. 
After the sound of the bottle crashing, kids at our table, other tables turned their heads. Some of the rich jocks stood up. Soon, other tables cleared and kids gathered around us. Security guards pushed through the crowd knowing something was about to happen. Three security guards, including the head security guard, intercepted us. You need to apologize, the head guard demanded. Jordan refused and explained it was a mistake. The security guard asked us what we wanted to do. He offered detention. The thing was, Jordan was a baseball player. He wasn't going to get detention because that would be during practice. Instead, his coach would make him run some sprints before or after practice. He might get a stern talk, but no real repercussions. Maybe we could go to a vending machine and get, get water to pour on him? A newer security guard suggested. Then I spoke up and said, I have an idea. He just needs to eat something. I went back to my side of the table. I collected the worst tasting jelly beans. I returned to the confused crowd. Jordan, you gotta eat these jelly beans, I said. Simon was disappointed initially. He wanted more punishment for having the front of his outfit soaked. The head security guard was confused. Those are just jelly beans? Thinking he thought I was trying to give him drugs, I showed him the candy package. Yeah, Harry Potter ones, like the movie. He just has to eat them now. At this point, Simon understood what I planned to do. Simon added, and if he doesn't chew them slowly before swallowing them, then we want him to get detention during baseball practice. <laughs> Missing practice would double his punishment. His coach would still make him run, maybe even more. We didn't have to wait long for him to consider. He agreed to eat the jelly beans. Jordan thought he had gotten the best deal. He had no idea what he'd done. I handed him the clutch of beans and he popped them into his mouth. He started chewing them. Before the flavors hit, there was a look of joy on his face. I got away with this. I could almost hear his thoughts. Then he tasted the flavors. I imagined the beans fought to create the worst flavor profile. He tasted vomit. Then there was a kick of boogers, then a slap of dirt. The flavor profile was rounded out with a punch of earwax. He recoiled and retched. Revolted, he stopped chewing. What is wrong with this candy? You have to chew them, I demanded. He kept chewing, squirming as he did so. If you throw up, you get detention, Simon shouted. Jordan clasped his hand over his mouth and struggled to swallow. The circle around us grew larger. Security couldn't keep them away. They had expected a fight, but now they were trying to understand what punishment had so quickly caused so much pain. The security guards relaxed as Jordan's face continued to recoil as he began to pick bits of the beans out of his teeth. It would be nice to have that water now. We were going to be wet for the rest of the day, but there was no chance Jordan was getting that taste out of his mouth. 
No, I don't think we can get that for you. We need to get to class. I may not remember our first fight, and I let him take that Scantron from me. Our third fight went a bit differently. I wonder if he remembers that flavor profile. We're going to interview Maria. We now know the books, so yeah. you're very excited. Or not. <laughs> very excited, yes. Okay, Grab, you're very excited. Yes. Highly, absolutely. I see it on your face. Absolutely. All right, the question is, of all the nice things someone could truthfully say about you, which one would make you feel the best? Oh, my goodness. Um, all the nice things that someone could say about me. Truthfully say. Truthfully say. <laughs> <laughs> Makes a difference. I mean, it just yeah, comes absolutely. with the words. Yeah. Um, I think the nicest thing someone could say is that I'm a good mom. Oh, yeah. I know that's true. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good one. That yeah. doesn't really require much explanation. Um, now we're going to do a quick would you rather. I have chosen this. Okay. You can see I had fun going through and selecting this. I have not a lot of free time, but when I do. Um, would you rather spend a day wearing wet jeans or spend a day wearing shoes that are two sizes too small. Oh, the wet jeans, because they're gonna dry out no, eventually. But, but I feel that the question implies that the jeans are not gonna dry, <laughs> that they're gonna stay <laughs> wet all day. Uh, if I may, they don't dry out. the shoes. I feel like the shoes would squeeze my feet and I wouldn't be able to do anything all day. Right. But with wet pants, with wet jeans, I could, you could, I deal. could figure it out. Yeah, yeah. All right. I'll make it a style. Show of hands yeah. for the jeans. Yeah. Show of hands for the shoes. All right. We're pretty, oh, just, we got just a few shoes. Okay. I like this. This is fun for me. Thank you for <laughs> indulging. And um, now we have The Great Unknowns, written by Maria Rubio and performed by Matt Stores. Great unknowns. The first time I go to the beach at 69th Street and Beachfront Road, I am amazed at how the dark little back roads of the hood turn into an expansive, smoothly paved beach. Solid houses of all different styles sit placidly behind perfectly manicured hedges, and the street signs boast that to park on the curb, I must have a special permit. I'm in a neighborhood called Averne, listening to ways guide me as as the warm summer breeze fills my lungs with salt and traces of mooring dew. There are a few cars on the road at this hour, and the ones I see going in the same direction as me all have the surfboards attached to their roofs. I'm making my way to the beach from a 12 and a half hour shift at the emergency room of a Queens hospital, and as I unfurl, as the night's events unfurl slowly into a safe blanket of memory that I may admire from my rearview mirror, I am scanning the streets for parking spots thinking that I don't belong here because this place looks like money and money and I don't have the best relationship. It is the summer of Black Lives Matter protests and I'm marching every chance I get. It feels good to have something physical and with uh, something to do with the physical, uh, pardon me. It feels good to do something physical with the anger and frustration I feel, to use my energy for something bigger than myself. 
As my all-white Air Force Ones hit the black tar of New York City streets, my voice joins a chorus of chants like an ancient songs from the depths of the sea. Our footsteps trickle down avenues, ushering in hope, violence, change. When my kids call from hundreds of miles away to ask how I'm doing, I tell them I'm okay. Concern clouds their little faces from their tiny screen on my phone. Are you sure, Mama? You don't look okay. They're old enough to understand the words, the words pandemic and deadly. They know me well enough to know that I'm the type of charge nurse who, who dives in front of a patient's punch, the type of person who jumps into the line of fire. I wonder if they're watching the protests on TV, scanning faces for me, hoping that I'm safe in the masses instead of getting arrested at the edges of the crowd. I've been close enough to hear the click of handcuffs against others' wrists, to have felt the adrenaline pump through me as words turn into actions and actions into arrests. I've had moments where I've had to stop and ask myself, what am I willing to give up? Am I willing to risk my life for this? I know full well that my nursing license can be taken away if I'm arrested, that my life can be taken away if I catch COVID, that I'm playing Russian roulette with, but just by being me. I parked four blocks away from the beach entrance in the parking lot of a mini strip mall with a bustling grocery store. Sweat has sprung on my brow, and for a moment I forget that I'm wearing a face mask. I wipe my face with the back of my hand before stripping off my scrubs to reveal a modest one-piece. Tossing all of my work clothes and, and shoes into a Target bag, I think of all the germs I'm displacing and realize I don't care about wiping down my back seat. It's June 2020 and I've finished another grueling shift taking care of people at the hospital. And for the first time in 11 years of being a mom, I'm away from my kids. I've sent them to Tennessee to live with my Tito and Tita while I take on as many shifts as possible. And because they're not here, I don't care about keeping my car clean. In fact, these days I don't care about much. Years ago, I found out that my ex had stopped paying our mortgage. It has been tens of thousands of legal dollars and a heap of emotional trauma later, and I'm still in the process of stopping foreclosure. I worry about the trauma that losing the house could inflict on my kids and, the dull, and then dull my anxiety with another shift at the hospital. This ebb and flow of my day-to-day -day worry, work, worry, work. It seems to be working these days. I'm too tired to worry, but all I do is work. Nurse staffing agencies are emailing and texting me. My hospital is paying top dollar COVID rate. And for the first time in my life, I think I might be possible to catch up on my debts and maybe save a little too. All it took was a deadly worldwide pandemic. When my feet meet the sand, I'm reassured by its warmth and softness. Nothing in New York City is supposed to take care of me. That much I've learned from the moment I took my first breath at Brookdale Hospital. And yet this here, Maybe my Filipino roots remember the sand on a distant shore, and all I know is that it's comforting, and I need that comfort. Every day I hear stories of my colleagues succumbing to this novel virus. People are speculating it's a hoax. The refrigerated truck in the back of the hospital is being filled with bodies. And every night I go to work and prepare myself to administer chest compressions. My forearms hum with the ache of the very thought of a code. I think of the ACLS cheat sheets that I made in nursing school, uh, the recount the medications and the intervals between each administration, quiz myself on EKG patterns. 
a montage of patients beeping medical equipment, overhead announcements, a stampede of feet seep easily to the forefront of my brain, and I think towards my first surfing lesson, and I think this, I need this. It doesn't make sense. I'm a proficient pool swimmer at best. I have never wanted to surf before in my life. I am physically and emotionally exhausted, and yet here I am at 8 a.m., putting on a wetsuit and trying to retain information on how to properly pop up on a board. My instructor is a woman in her 20s who is patient and kind, a lifer who has waves tattooed on her ankle. From her, I learned that surfing is basically cobra pose into warrior two pose. <laughs> and somehow transcribing her instructions into the familiar language of yoga makes me feel more at ease. I can do this, I think, to myself. This isn't that new to me. Before I know it, I'm belly down on a surfboard, digging outstretched fingers and forearms, elbows deep into the Atlantic, stopping only when my instructor tells me to stop. We are far enough away from the shore that I can almost forget the loneliness that will sting me when I step into my home. We are far enough away from land that I can forget about everything that exists there. I can almost forget about the crush of responsibilities and mistakes, errors and judgment, the risk to save lives. I can't make out the faces of the, of the people sunbathing closest to the water or the faces of patients I saw in the AR, and yet I can feel them. My skin prickles with heat of their fear and frustration when they yell at hospital staff. I can sense the blaze of embarrassment pumping blood to the surface of their cheeks in the angsty corridors of every unit. The den of enraged complaints melts into a crash of waves surrounding me. It's unclear what everyone's mad at. Are the patients mad at staff? Are they frustrated with the hospital? Are they beat down by life? Or is it something or someone else entirely? Burnout is real in both sides of the hospital-issued ID. I think of my colleagues so tired and overworked, some lashing back out in frustration. I think of my mother, a retired nurse who had a treasure trove of stories of abuse from patients, a woman too kind to retell these tales and instigate emotional response. I think of the protests and notice an overlap. It's difficult to exist within the current systems, all of them. Sitting on the sea at the mercy of something so much greater than myself, I can't help but think about how easy it is to be hurt. Who falls prey to unfortunate events? Who doles out punishment? And who gets away with it? In the hospital, I see it all the time. The homeless person, the sex worker, the arrested patient, the non-English speaker, the smelly patient, the rude patient, the ones who need kindness the most and who are so easily abused by systems that value profit over people. I see trained professionals doing their best to provide care while preserving themselves. And how impossible is this feat? How utterly necessary yet impossible is it to survive a torrential downpour of all this pressure? The lives seeking assistance, the souls needing care, what else in America, where else in America can you go at any time, day or night? Ask strangers to care for you and expect that need to be met. My instructor tells me to paddle out and I see a line of surfers who had been patiently waiting out in the water and are now belly down on their boards, skillfully threading their arms in the frenzied current. 
I frantically mimic the behavior. And the water and adrenaline rush to my head and I hear my instructor yell, pop up! And my Cobra Bros miraculously jumps into Warrior Two pose and yes, I'm doing it. My feet planted solidly as my torso navigates propulsion of force with a, whose magnitude is overwhelming. Pride emanating from my outstretched arms, core adjusting to the unsteady course of direction I find myself moving in. Because of beginner's luck, or my ancestors' island spirits, but definitely not skill. <laughs> uh, for several seconds, I know no greater high than the euphoria of that very moment before I come crashing into the waters and my whole body is swallowed by the ocean. Submersed in the salty tides, free-falling until the tug of the ankle leash reminds me of the styrofoam surfboard, I somehow do not succumb to drowning. Before I can remember, remember that I don't swim well, that I should too be exhausted to move, that my heart hurts too much to feel pleasure or pain, I am maneuvering my limbs and finding rhythm that propels me forward. My intuition is leading me to where I need to go. My common sense is dictating that the board is a gigantic float device and my breath is steady. I find the energy to break free of the ocean's embrace, jump past the crest of waves, exhale any trace of foreign liquid from my body, and fill my lungs with air. When the shore is close enough that I can put my feet on the ground and expect to be met by sand, I fish the rented surfboard from the waves and start walking. With a certainty that is foolish at best, I turn around and face my instructor. I'm ready. I say as my second wind finds me. Let's do this again. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.